This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America. Brought to you in cooperation with American University's School of Communication in Washington, D.C. and Link TV. And now here's host, Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. This week, turmoil and violence in Mexico, past and present. For the present, we look at the state of Michoacan and the Knights Templar drug cartel. And we'll also look backward at the Zapatista uprising 20 years later. But first, Megan Eckhamel is here with our weekly review of news from around Latin America. Brazil's Senate passed a sweeping internet privacy law this week. The law makes it harder for internet companies to collect data on users. From now on, every internet provider in Brazil must guarantee that emails can only be read by senders and receivers. The bill also requires companies like Facebook and Google to obey Brazil's internet laws, even though they store data on servers outside Brazil. Speaking at a forum on internet freedom, President Dilma Rousseff praised the new legislation. People need to have the same rights online and offline. The law was prompted by revelations last year when the U.S. National Security Agency had a secret surveillance program in Brazil. Rousseff canceled a state visit to Washington due to the scandal. Protests in Brazilian favelas, or slums, are turning deadly. In Rio de Janeiro, protesters and police clashed, ending in one death, and a 12-year-old boy was injured. The protest began when the body of a professional television dancer was discovered in a favela. Residents blamed the police for killing the dancer, but the police claimed the dancer's injuries were consistent with a fall. This violence is not new to the favelas. Only four days prior, residents of another Rio favela lit four buses on fire in protest of two other deaths. One, a 21-year-old shot on his way to a Good Friday church service, and the other, a 17-year-old who crashed into a military vehicle on his motorcycle. According to Amnesty International, Brazilian police are responsible for about 2,000 deaths per year. Many of those extrajudicial killings go unpunished. Many Latin American countries paid tribute to famed Colombian author Gabriel Garcia Marquez this week for World Book Day. In Venezuela, Many well-known poets and writers attended events around the country and read some of their work and the work of García Márquez. Yanuva León is one of the organizers. Besides this marvelous tribute paid to Gabriel García Márquez following his death, we are also highlighting the contribution made by this Latin American writer for promoting reading. In Colombia, President Juan Manuel Santos led a ceremony in Bogota's cathedral. The author's sisters also attended the event. Garcia Marquez's formal commemoration was held in Mexico City on Monday. He was cremated in a private family ceremony last week. The ceremony was not religious out of respect of the author's beliefs. The family has yet to decide what to do with Garcia Marquez's ashes. For Latin Pulse... I'm Megan Eckhamel. Thanks, Megan. Not just satisfied with controlling the drug trade, 
Mexico's cartels are diversifying. The latest product, limes. With the critical shortage of limes, the price has spiked this year. Limes are selling at about $3 per pound, about six times what they were worth last year. Seeing a profit, cartels are hijacking lime shipments in Mexico and finding other ways to control the flow of this product northward. In the state of Michoacan, the Knights Templar Drug Cartel and other criminal organizations are credited with muscling in on avocados, too. These reports come on the heels of news that Mexican prosecutors have accused the mayor of Apatzingan with collaborating with the Knights Templar in extortion schemes. We turn to Stephen Dudley, one of the founders of the popular website Insight Crime, to provide answers and context about what's happening in Michoacan. Michoacan in Mexico, um, does the government really control the state at this point, or are the drug gangs the ones who are in control? I think it's clear with the emergence of the self-defense groups or what have been called vigilantes or even militias, uh, all three names are used interchangeably, that the state does not control Michoacan, neither, neither the local or state government or the federal government, which is why these groups have emerged. Essentially, what you have is a, is a power vacuum. And in the power vacuum, uh, you have, you know, uh, groups that uh, what they will always say when they start is that we are going to protect you. Uh, but they too often turn into criminal organizations themselves. I, I want to talk about that evolution in, in, in a bit, but the government is trying to disarm some of these community groups, some of these vigilante groups. What's happening with that? Well, there have been uh, various attempts to sit down, and at first it was a sort of creation of a broad legal framework um, and that was perhaps maybe an attempt to integrate some of them into this security strategy. But now they've moved on. Uh, the government, the federal government anyway, has tried to set up a situation in, this, in which they create a deadline. And at that point, what they'll want from the self-defense groups will be them to be demobilized and to hand in their high-caliber weapons. And that, that appears to be the situation right now. The, the deadline, the tentative deadline right now is May 10th uh, for them to take these actions. But it's not clear they will. You talked about the evolution of these groups from community groups or vigilante groups to something more and something, something a little bit more dangerous. Um, when we talk about Michoacan, we talk about a cartel known as the Knights Templar. Did they not start as a community self-defense group against cartels? Or do I have the story wrong? Is it the mythology of the, of the cartel? Well, there, there's a lot of different stories as to, as to how this group emerged. But um, the easiest way to, to think about it is to think about what Michoacan represents for criminal organizations. And, and that is an area in which they can uh, import um, both drugs and precursor chemicals to fabricate drugs, most often in that area anyway, methamphetamines, um, an area in which they can store these drugs and an area from which they can dispatch these drugs. Um, this has made this area a very important point uh, of, of all of these activities and has made it a very desirable area, area for various criminal groups for decades. 
um, amidst all these different battles of these different criminal organizations, emerged the Knights Templar. The Knights Templar is actually an offshoot of another criminal organization that was called La Familia Michoacana, which was all about sort of protecting Michoacan and what Michoacan is about uh, from other groups, uh, such as the very famous Mexican group known as the Setas, um, who they said were preying upon them. So in a way, yes, um, these groups, and in fact, many, many criminal groups, not just in Michoacan, but around the world, emerge around this idea of protection. Uh, we will protect you. We will keep you safe from these outside intruders. And this is this is the case, uh, certainly, with these um, new self-defense groups as well, which is one of the main worries, that they will simply morph into another predatory criminal group. You mentioned that the Knights Templar are, are dealing in precursor chemicals, are, are dealing in meth. Um, what else? Are, are they using the more traditional drugs, too, as far as transportation, marijuana, cocaine? We stress the idea that they're involved in drugs uh, for one very specific reason, and that is it is the most important money-making tool for these organizations. But these organizations are involved in a wide array of criminal activities, and that's what makes them so dangerous over the long haul, um, because you can eliminate their drug trafficking prowess, their, their ability to send drugs to the United States, and you will not eliminate these criminal groups because what we're looking at now are groups with an economic portfolio that in certainly may include drugs, but it also includes kidnapping, extortion, piracy, um, the theft and resale of natural resources, uh, including ore in, in Michoacan itself. Um, so these are organizations that have a lot of different revenue streams now. And yes, drugs are a part of that, but they may not be the main part anymore, which is what should worry people in Mexico. I, I want to clarify, you mentioned piracy. So are we talking about the piracy of music and, and other copyrighted material? Are we talking about hijacking trucks or both? Well, we're talking about both, uh, but we're talking mostly about the sort of uh, control of contraband or piracy markets. A lot of these groups don't necessarily exert direct control over these markets in the sense that they are the ones who are buying and selling these materials. What they are is exacting a tax on these criminal activities. And that is a, a sort of method of, of criminal activity. In other words, you, you're, it's, it's what's most commonly referred to as sort of a mafia style. You exert a quota or a tax around specific activities rather than trying to control them. So what's important to you is to have military and territorial control more than actual control over the means of distribution or other aspects of the economic activity itself. Along those lines, um, one of the stories that has come out is the reach of the Knights Templar into the agricultural sector in Michoacan and other states. I, I've heard that the term now, blood avocados, that if, if you are buying avocados from the wrong producers, then you're actually giving money to the Knights Templars. Is, is that something that's also um, a part of this complex structure? 
I think it is, but I also think that those that sorts of terminology is really unfair. Uh, I think that you know those who operate in those territories have had to give quotas to many different organizations that we could label blood or bloodthirsty organizations, uh, including elements of a very corrupt Mexican state. So, you know, now all of a sudden, yes, okay, it's blood. Uh, But it's not necessarily fair for those people, uh, small or mid-size or even large-size avocado growers. They live in a situation in which they have to deal with their reality, and there is a vacuum of power there. There is no one who's in control. So, these criminal organizations take control and they exert their influence and they exact taxes on these people. So do I need to check my avocados before I buy them? Uh, you, you, you can certainly check your avocados before you buy them. But, you know, I think it's just, it's just naive to think that, they're, you know, that we're going to have any impact whatsoever on the Knights Templar if we stop buying avocados. If that's where this particular campaign is going, I think that that's unfortunate. I think the people you will be hurting will be these uh, smaller, medium-sized level uh, avocado growers. So the the um, scorecard for the Mexican government this year would include Chapo Guzman, maybe the, the biggest drug lord, one of the biggest drug lords in the world. Um, I believe um, that the head of the Zetas also was, um, I'm not sure, killed or, or apprehended within the past so many months. We've had these other captures and death with the Knights Templar, and and your organization or recognized the Knights Templar as maybe the third most important cartel in Mexico. So that's a pretty good scorecard for chopping the heads off of these particular criminal organizations, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I mean, yes, it is. It's just um, obviously the 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 battle, uh, and we said this after Chapo Guzman was captured. The battle against criminal organizations is not about chopping off heads. That is an aspect, and in some respects, a very important aspect that illustrates that your government has capability, wherewithal, sustenance, you know, resources to be able to go after and capture some of these uh, guys. But on another level, it is um, a bit of a red herring. I mean, you know, at the end of the day, what wins against criminal groups are very strong institutions. Um, And that is where you would hope that most of the resources are going, some sort of sustained effort to uh, make sure that your judicial systems, your local police, um, you know, your courts, uh, your prisons... Uh, can deal with all of these particular challenges that organized crime and especially sophisticated multi-million dollar criminal organizations present to you. And that's the real issue. Um, and that's where we would hope to see more progress. We're, we're not seeing that type of progress in Michoacan or in some of these other states? These are the, What's happening in Michoacan, their ability to kill in one instance or capture in another instance high-level members of the Knights Templar is certainly a reflection and a very interesting one of a relationship developed between community organizations and the security apparatus, the federal security apparatus. In this case, we're talking about the self-defense groups and police mostly. And what the self-defense groups bring to the table 
is they bring an incredible amount of local intelligence that they're willing to share. And this is the difference. It's not necessarily, certainly an aspect of this is that they're running around with high-powered weapons and that they're somewhat organized and that they have some, you know, some presence, physical presence. Um, but what they have more than that is they have local support, so they have political capital in these areas where they are, and they have intelligence. And, and the government, because it's sort of um, had this strategy of, of perhaps you know, not necessarily focusing on, on what the community could give to them, um, they've, never, they've never seen this possibility. And hopefully they can look beyond the weapons and understand that any, any security strategy that is going to work works because there is community buy-in. People in the community believe it's in their best interest to keep responsible, accountable authorities informed about what's going on in their area. But until you create that sort of social contract, then you won't have long-term security. And that social contract in places like Michoacan and other places in Mexico has been broken. So the government has to work to reconstruct that social contract, not necessarily think, oh, we look goody, you know, we've got a formula here. We bring all these people together, we throw weapons in their hands, and then we start capturing people. No, that is a short-sighted view of this. They need to take the long view and understand that over the long haul, they have to create these relationships in order to create secure situations for these communities. Thank you so much. Stephen Thank Dudley you. of Insight Crime, our guest today on Latin Pulse. Just to clarify, Mexican authorities did capture Miguel Angel Trevino, the leader of the Zetas cartel last year, and Joaquin El Chapo Guzman, the leader of the Sinaloa cartel earlier this year. Mexican authorities have also killed two leaders of the Knights Templar and captured another all since the beginning of 2014. Coming up, a look back at Mexico's Zapatista revolt. Stay with us. This planet we call Earth, abundant with new food, new cures, new life. An amazing place. Please don't let it vanish without a trace. Call for your free World Wildlife Fund Action Kit with 10 simple things you can do to help leave our children a living planet. Call 1-800-C-A-L-L-W-W-F. Welcome back to Latin Pulse. 20 years ago, Mexican journalist Jorge Luis Sierra and I traveled through Mexico's state of Chiapas together, covering the Zapatista uprising. Sierra is the author of various books in Spanish, including The Internal Enemy, Counterinsurgency, and the Armed Forces in Mexico. Now, 20 years since the revolt, we took the opportunity to visit by phone to discuss the Zapatistas and their indigenous roots. Here are excerpts from our conversation. It was so important for, for Mexico. It was the beginning of a new era, I think. Um, it was also the, uh, a new era for the, for the Mexican army because uh, they have to face again the same trouble of um, facing human rights violations, accusations of uh, human rights violations in um, in a big scale in in Chiapas. The Mexican army was was on its way to crushing this particular rebellion. It was bombing villages and and could have easily rolled over the Zapatistas, could it not? But but then there was a reaction from the from the world community. 
against what was happening in, in, in southern Mexico. Isn't that what stopped the, the army from absolutely winning this particular fight? Well, I think uh, it was it was different in terms of uh, military strategy. I think um, it was more uh, a strategy of, of um, stopping the rebellion to to grow more than expected. Uh, it was a contention. It was it was not a destruction strategy. It was more more like uh, how we can stop the the uprising. From from growing, so so the, the the first thing that the army did at that time was to to enter the the indigenous communities, particularly in the zone of the Los Altos de Chiapas, uh, the highlands in Chiapas, because they knew that the Chiapas army was composed mostly by campesinos, and then the strategy was to separate the soldier from from the campesino. So, uh, as you remember, when you and me were into that places, we saw hundreds and maybe thousands of people dis- displayed in several cities in the in the highlands, and those were the communities, mostly uh, Zapatistas with, without weapons, that were trying to be part of the rebellion, but they didn't have any weapon at all. So they were controlled by the army. Uh, so the fight, the fight just um, lasted 12 days without um, a heavy amount of casualties. But for the army, it was so significant because there were so so famous cases of torture and assassination and uh, execution, um, extrajudicial execution in Chiapas. So the cases went... Uh, when so famous worldwide because of the communication and the, uh, the internet at that time, um, so too many people in the world knew about this this situation. And then, as one author said at that time, the first casualty for the army was the the prestige. Uh, so after having this case of trying to win the support of the Mexican people, trying to bring. Uh, respect from from the Mexican population, the army was again into trouble because uh, they were pictured like um, human rights offenders, like human rights violators, uh, like um, people who who were trying to crush a rebellion with uh, heavy weaponry, um, combating people with very rudimentary weapons. Because of the of this big amount of soldiers, soldiers from the Mexican army were concentrated in one particular zone of Chiapas, and there was a huge, a huge territory without control. So the Mexican government and the Mexican army started to promote paramilitaries, paramilitary organizations in Chiapas, and um, training other communities who were enemies of the Zapatistas to combat the, the, the Zapatistas. So they were providing money, they were providing uh, military training, they even provided uh, intelligence uh, information from the about the Zapatistas. So 
all the massacres that we saw at that time were committed by paramilitaries supported by by local the local government or the state government or even the federal government so it was a tool for for the for the Mexican government to crush Zapatistas not by using the army but using paramilitary organizations at that time so the the massacres of Actial, for example, was committed by paramilitary organizations, and as you know, some some documents, even from the U.S. Uh, from the U.S. intelligence services that were disclassified and now are available to the public, um, were saying that the, paramil- the paramilitaries were supported secretly by a special units, secret units of the military intelligence, uh, the Mexican military uh, intelligence supporting those uh, those paramilitary organizations. So it was the it was a second part of the strategy to to, to crush the the uprising and to stop the rebellion to grow from growing. When we look back and we talk about this low intensity warfare that continued on for some years after 1994, and we look at the popularity now of NAFTA. Um, did the Zapatistas lose this war? Actually, it was not a war, um, like we can understand. It was a low-intensity conflict. It was not a war. Um, there were some battles, but the battles were not between, between two armies equally equipped and, and trained. No, it was um, it was a fight between a regular army and a quite irregular group of armed people with some weaponry, with with any capacity to to defeat the Mexican army. So it was not exactly a war. It was it was more about a psychological war and a political and a political struggle. Um, politically. Uh, they, it was a victory for the Zapatistas for several years after the uprising because uh, they received support from the international community. They uh, received support from the Mexican Congress who approved a law um, ordering negotiations and um, providing legal protection for the Zapatistas. So the Zapatistas couldn't be arrested because they were protected by by a law that still is, exists. It, it, it is active, that law. And, so and they, have a, they have a semi-autonomous zone now, do they not? They have like these autonomous communities. Uh, the, the, the future for the for the Zapatistas, for the Zapatista army and the, the Zapatistas leaders and the political leaders is, is uh, very short. I don't see any future for them. I see more future for the communities who are like an example of um, survival and um, struggling. And um, but still, they they haven't resolved resolved any any big issue in terms of education, um, services, health, and and so on. So the situation is critical. May sound like uh, pessimistic. But I think it is the reality in in Chiapas. 
So now I think um, we have less violence, less social violence. We don't have the army attacking the communities. We, we don't have that in Chiapas anymore, but we still have um, signals of paramilitary activity and, and with the risk of us receiving support from the drug traffickers and other local powers in Chiapas. So the situation is difficult. I think um, we need to take this seriously and start thinking about um, reforms reforms at the level. That concludes our interview with Jorge Luis Sierra, the author of The Internal Enemy, Counterinsurgency and the Armed Forces in Mexico. And now a programming note, Latin Pulse will be coming to you one day early next week on Thursday, May 1st. This program is available in various locations on the web, including iTunes, Facebook, and Musica Q. You can also find us in the Brazilian online game, Minimundos. If you'd like to comment on this program, you may leave us a message online via SoundCloud, or you may write us via email. You can find us at latinpulse at gmx.com. That's latinpulse, all one word, at gmx.com. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website, www.linktv, all one word, .org, and then slash Latin Pulse, also all one word. That's www.linktv. Thanks for joining us this week on Latin Pulse for our entire team. Associate producer, Megan Hamill, Writer, Elisa Pacheco. And announcer, Victor Kilo. I'm Rick Rockwell. Escucha nosotros vez. Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is produced in Washington, D.C. at American University School of Communication and with the support of Link TV. Theme music provided by Link TV and additional music by Canary Productions and Bath Time Music Publishing. This program is copyright 2014, Las Rocas Productions.